the series on the events of the end times. And I wanted that series to give you an overview of the end times events and an understanding of the basic sequence of the major parts of what we call eschatology. The critical part of that is that the path towards the day of the Lord is not an easy one. And we will not simply be snatched away in a rapture, which will avoid the difficulties. In fact, should we live into those very last days, we will face a strong pressure to fall away into assimilation into the world system. And if we refuse, we will suffer the great tribulation in which we will be hated of all nations for the sake of the Messiah. Now, if that's true, and if we live to the time of those events, or we are in similar patterns which ebb and flow towards that end, we need to be prepared. Prepared to read the signs and prepared to set our path towards being those who endure to the end. The end of our life or the end of the world. In 1976, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book on the rise and decline of the Western thought and culture, and he titled it, How Should We Then Live? I was fascinated by the title. What does that phrase mean? How should we live then? Or how then should we live? In other words, how should we live at that time? Or how then, because of circumstances, should we live? So borrowing from his title and in the context of what we've been considering, I titled this series, How Then Should We Live? I had four scripture texts going through my mind as I did the previous series. And in this brief series, I want to discuss the implications of them for our households and our congregation. Three of the texts are pretty familiar to you, and I suspect one is not as familiar. So today I'm going to introduce them, and then I'll talk more practically about how we do this in our homes and in our congregation and in our lives in the next few weeks, probably during the period of Advent into the Christmas time. Uh, certainly will be done by Epiphany. The first passage is one you know real well, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In this very well-known passage, Paul after explaining in the first 11 chapters all of God's eternal purpose in creating mankind and his plan of salvation centered on Israel and extended to the nations through the atonement of the Messiah, he admonishes us as believers to give ourselves wholly to God, not wholly in the sense of being separate, but completely as a living sacrifice that is not conformed to this world, but is transformed in our mind by the Spirit and the Word in order that we can do the will of God, the commanded will of God. This relates to what we mean when we say that we are in the world but not of it. We should live differently. 
We belong to a world to come, not this one. And this one is passing away. Now, a second passage that I want you to be uh, thinking about as we talk about this is in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. Peter says in these verses, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, we have nothing permanent in this life or in this world. And since all of this stuff all of the institutions of man, all of the governments, all of the country, all of the music, all of the plays, everything that man has developed is going to be destroyed. What kind of people ought we to be in engaging in holiness and godliness? Both of those things are the major sorts of what the commandments are as a way of life. Now, our culture wants us to believe that the right politician or the right court decision, as in the Supreme Court, or the right cure will solve the problems of the world. Hunger will be solved. Poverty will be solved. Crime will be solved. Divorce will be ended. Injustice will be made just. This is a false notion. The world cannot stand, this world cannot stand, because human beings can't fix it. We are the problem. We are sinners, and we need salvation. We need a rebirth of our spirit. That's what being born again is about. We need a transformation of our mind. That's what the word and the being led by the spirit is about. And we need the resurrection of our bodies once and for all to end the desires of the flesh. That can't fully happen in this life and in this world. Now, when you're young, you always think that you can make the world a better place. I hear it all the time on campus. I want to make the world better. The world's a better place because of us. Older people begin to realize that that may not be possible. And older, wise people know that it can't be perfected. That is the problem of idealism. And there are two kinds of idealism. One of them is dangerous. The idealism that says we can make a better, we can make the world perfect, and therefore the perfect is the enemy of just improving things. That kind of idealism of all or nothing usually ends up with nothing. The other kind of idealism is an attempt towards the ideal, keeps the ideal in mind, working towards it, but realizing that it will never quite uh, be there because it can't be brought into a perfect idealism. There is a manner of life that anticipates the world to come while engaging in some manner this present one. We are not actually called to fix the world 
uh, in the sense of perfection or to hide from it in isolated communities. Those two extremes are not where we're to live. We are called to tikkun olam, to repair the world, and to euangelion, the idea of sharing the good news of escape from this world of death into life. Now, how do we do this? We do this by living light in the world. I'm going to give you a little play on those words, living light in the world. But first, let me give you the example that I've given you before. This idea of tikkun olam is the idea of repairing the world, keeping the world as good as we can while we wait for the world to come. I, I, rec, I uh, think of it as keeping the house. You're going to have a brand new house built, but you have to live in the old house until that house is built. You will keep it in repair so that it functions, but you will not try to make it perfect because, after all, your hope is in the next house. Our hope is in the next world. We can only keep this one in repair the best we can while we're waiting for the new and better one that God is going to provide. Now, to do this, we have to live light in the world. Now, I said I was going to play around with that word. Two ways of saying this. Living light in the world, L-I-G-H-T, or living light in the world, L-I-T-E. The spelling makes the difference, and we have to do both. We are light in the world, L-I-G-H-T. We are light in the world when we give illumination of God's will as we become doers of the word. We manifest him, and the illumination of the scriptures then begins to be seen in our life. But we also have to live light in the world, L-I-T-E. That is, to not to be ensnared in the culture and the world system which is passing away. And that brings us to my third text, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. 1 John chapter 2, 15 to 17. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. And that's how we know it is the last hour. So, I want you to catch this. Love is to give yourself or something to someone out of your time and resources. In other words, it's benefiting someone at your expense. We are to love God by giving ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves, that we would do for them as we would do for ourselves. And we are to love our fellow believer, one another, as Christ loved us and he died for us. We ought to give up our life for one another. This is the essence of all the commandments of God. Love, love of God, love of neighbor, and love of one another. And that is his commanded will. And John warns us that if we love the world, which is passing away, then the love of the Father is not actually in us. Because God does not love the world. 
And you'll go, wait a minute, didn't we start the service by reading God so loved the world? That John 3.16 says God loved the world. He loves his creation and he loves mankind that he created as his image bearers. But we have marred the world with our sin. And John is talking about this when he talks about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. The Father didn't create that and he doesn't love that. We created that when we made the world in our image. And that began with Cain and then with Babel and on with Babylon as we saw in the last series. The ways of man are not the ways of God. So how then are we to live? We're to live as light, L-I-G-H-T, to the world, and light in the world, L-I-T-E, in the world. And I'm going to talk about this in, in detail and practical how we do it in the next few weeks, but I want to get this basic idea across. And that brings me to my last text, which I think you probably are less familiar with because of where this verse is hiding. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'd like you to turn there, and I'd like you to kind of mull this passage over uh, over the week as we get ready to spring off of it for, our, uh, for this series as we talk about it in practical terms. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 to 31. Paul says this, But this I say, brethren, that the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as if they did not rejoice, and those who buy as if they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the the form of this world is passing away. Now, these words that Paul gives are placed in the context of living in this world. This chapter is really uh, about living in this world, and Paul is giving a very practical set of instructions regarding staying in the condition that you are called, slave or free, married or not married. And he also addresses marriage and, to some extent, remarriage in this context. In it, Paul breaks from that context and makes this statement. And he makes it clear that we are to live light, L-I-T-E, in this world. And he tells us why. He tells us, brethren, the time has been shortened. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the end times. As we approach the last days, time will be shortened. In Matthew 24:22, we read where Jesus says about the great tribulation that those days would be shortened because if not, no flesh would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So in verse 26 of chapter 7 of Corinthians, Paul makes it clear that he's addressing this difference from the norm of marrying and, and, and all of that, because of the present distressed. 
And in the context of that present distress, he even suggests not marrying even if people are betrothed because there is something that has shortened the time. As a result, Paul declares that the time is shortened and we should live light in the world. So how does he describe that? What does it look like? Well, Paul says those who have wives should be as though they didn't have a wife. Now, is Paul saying that I should act like I'm not married? I should act like a single guy? No. And by the way, he would also tell the wives that they should act as though they didn't have husbands. We'll talk more about this next week, but I want you to think about it. He says those who weep, those who are in mourning, as if they're not mourning. Boy, when you're in mourning, when you're in grief, you are overtaken by that thing. And he says, if you're rejoicing as though you did not rejoice. And if you're buying, boy, we're in the buying season now, as if you did not possess the things that you bought. And then he gives this general statement, those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. Notice this notion. This is our key. Must not make full use of the world. That's living light, L-I-T-E, in the world. Why? Because this world is passing away. And this world is going to hate us like it did him. So we have to rethink our manner of life in to live more lightly in the world, as light to the world, as we obey God, and as light in the world, not getting too engaged or deep into it. Uh, because we need to do this even more as we see the culture turning dark and as we see it becoming against the light of the scriptures and the people of God. And that's going to be the subject of our series. How do we actually do this? How do we very practically in everyday life and in the decisions we make be light, L-I-G-H-T, and live light? L-I-T-E, in the world. That's what we're going to talk about. So, my conclusion here is then, how then shall we live in light of the changing culture around us? Well, we have to prepare ourselves and our children and our converts for difficult times. Difficult times ahead. And we must be light to the world. That means we can't hide ourselves away. That's what we all think. Boy, let's just get a compound somewhere in Montana and just stay away from the world. The Amish have done that, and the ultra-Orthodox Jews have done that to some extent. And, and the light has to be seen. It has to be lived out there. We have to engage that world, but we have to have light footsteps so that we don't get entangled in the world. And that requires an attitude of priority regarding being part of the kingdom and having an eternal perspective that simply repairs the world while we wait for the kingdom to come and calls people out of the world so that they will wait for the king to return and come with us. And that's what we're going to talk about. I'm going to try to be very, very practical about everyday life. How in all our ways do we acknowledge him so that he will guide our path? So I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and then I'll take any Q&A that uh, is 
part of this. Let's pray.